listener production. Hi there, I'm Chris Walker. Thanks for listening to Season 2 of Brains Trust. One of our special guests on the podcast was a man by the name of Rob Reed, whose career has taken him from tech entrepreneur to author to TED Talk guru. While we are all still dealing with the continuing fallout of COVID-19, Rob has busied himself worrying about the next pandemic, one that makes this one feel like child's play. What follows can get pretty technical, but I found it deeply fascinating as Rob walks me through the world of manipulating viruses, synthetic biology, and the reality of a scarier, more deadly pandemic, which he is sure is coming. Rob is a very smart guy, and it was a pleasure speaking with him, and I hope you enjoy this bonus episode. Your concern isn't just about COVID-19, it's about the next pandemic. Tell me what you imagine is coming. There are two threats that we face in terms of future pandemics. Um, Let's start with the known one, which is that we have been going through this ghastly experience with COVID. And in very recent history, quite a number of novel viruses like COVID have come, you know, essentially optically out of nowhere and have become, you know, anywhere from small to very significant problems. To just name a handful, uh, there was, of course, SARS about 20 years ago. Um, there was something that's less well-known called MERS, Middle East Respiratory um, Syndrome, which came out um, some years after SARS. There was Zika quite recently, and of course, now there's COVID. This is four outbreaks in 20 years. And what we need mm. to be worried about here is that there's really no reason why any of these outbreaks, quote-unquote, had to be as relatively benign as they are. Now, it'll sound crazy to use the word benign in conjunction with COVID, given that millions of people have died and, you know, I mean, all the, you know, trillions of dollars in economic damage, et cetera. Um, But COVID is not particularly deadly compared to a lot of other diseases that are out there. So take SARS. I mean, SARS kills, its case fatality rate is somewhere in the neighborhood of 10%. Uh, The case fatality rate for MERS is closer to 30 to 35%. They just don't happen to be particularly contagious diseases. Um, In the case of SARS, um, it's not very contagious simply because, or it didn't prove to be very contagious, simply because people became extremely symptomatic extremely quickly. And so there just wasn't much of an incubation period for it to spread. And um, I believe that we can say similar things about MERS, although I know fewer things about MERS. So when we view recent history, and those are four you know, significant diseases that have busted out in the last 20 years right there, and I'm sure that there are smaller ones that didn't either hit the world's radar screen or my own, this is going to keep happening. And we need to be very, very concerned about the very real prospect that something as transmissible, as contagious as COVID is going to come along with a much higher case fatality rate. That's something that nature can deal to us. So that's risk number one. And that's ample reason right there to be very, very concerned about future pandemic risk and to take all the measures we possibly can to mitigate those risks. The greater risk, in my view, is the possibility that at some point someone is going to engineer a virus with the express intention of making it as deadly as possible. And the the problem with that is, you know, COVID wishes us no harm. Mother Nature wishes us no harm. Mm. Ultimately, these things were created by, you know, collisions of, of DNA and critters in the wild and humanity and possibly laboratories. I mean, that possibility is definitely out there. But nobody sat down and designed COVID or SARS or MERS 
to kill as many of us as possible. But should somebody do such a thing, and we could talk about who might do that and what their motivations might be and why might that might be entirely possible for a large number of people fairly soon in a moment. But should somebody do that, it is presumptive that they would be, you know, doing it malevolently and trying to cause maximum destruction. So we could see contagiousness that goes far beyond COVID. We could see lethality that goes far beyond COVID. We could see far longer incubation periods of asymptomatic transmission. And you twist any of those knobs and, you know, we could have something that could genuinely um, threaten civilization itself. So there's a lot to unpack there. The first one is your expression there of how many of how many outbreaks has been in not in just a twenty year window? Mm-hmm. I guess the the obvious question is why does it keep happening? From a I understand that it's you know part of what nature spits out, but it'd be interesting to know whether it's happening more frequently. But then, and you said you know the appropriate measures that we could take to to guard against it. What are they? Yeah. So why it keeps happening? I, it is happening with greater and greater frequency, and you know there. Opinions differ as to why, but there's there, there's a pretty high consensus that you know the fact that we're encroaching much more on nature than ever before, and we continue to do that with every passing year, brings us a closer and closer contact um, with things like bats, um, with things like you know other primates that aren't human um, in in Africa, um, you know bats more in, in southern China. Um, Camels, in the case of MERS, I believe MERS originated in camels. We're we're encroaching more on nature, and also um, we're living in tighter and tighter quarters with more and more animals. And so, um, something that is generically called bird flu, um, but there's a, a diversity of different kinds, and one that particularly concerns me is called H5N1. Um, but avian flu migrates, generally speaking, from chickens to people in scenarios in which people are spending an enormous amount of time with chickens. So that will, could be farmers, that could be people who process chickens, that could be people who transport them, who sell them, that kind of thing. Um, so it's, you know, the intensification of agriculture and um, the fact that we're encroaching more and more on nature, generally these things are called zoonotic viruses. They jump from another animal um, to a human, thus zoo, zoonotic. So I believe that is the main reason why we're seeing more and more of these things. And then another thing is that we're much more with every passing year, we're more in, until the last few years, um, much more interlinked. You know, more people traveling further on more and more planes, mixing up the exposures that people have to different diseases with increasing rapidity and with far, far, far greater numbers. Um, now, in terms of what we can do to prevent um, or to better prevent things that are coming in, um, I could literally, and I, in fact, I have in the past talked for hours about this, but I'll, I'll give you just a couple of headlines um, right now. One is that we could take significant steps to make it harder for bad actors to synthesize deadly viruses. And I'll leave that one aside because we haven't really talked about those bad actors and what their motives will be um, for now. Another one is, yeah, we'll get to that. Um, Another one that is just painfully obvious is we can and should be doing a radically better job of surveillance, particularly of any respiratory illnesses that come to the attention of a doctor or a public health system. Right now, I mean, we know how hard it was to get widespread COVID testing up to speed. We finally achieved that to some degree in the United States and to greater and lesser degrees in different countries. Um, That one, you know, kind of caught us by surprise, COVID, obviously. And it's remarkable Mm -hmm. how much variance there was between countries in terms of how rapidly they got a good testing apparatus up. 
we need to learn best practices from those countries that did exceptional jobs. Uh, Korea is one that got a very, very rapid testing system up. We also need to get unbelievably serious about diagnosing as closely as we can every single respiratory um, uh, illness that, again, as I said, comes to the attention of a doctor, public health system, a hospital. It's remarkable how little diagnosis actually happens with respiratory illnesses. Um, Very few people that I know have ever gotten a flu test. I certainly haven't. Um, I know one person who says that they have in the past, but when you go to a doctor, at least in the United States, um, with a really bad case of the flu or a terrible cold, there is almost never any kind of diagnosis that goes on because flu tests are generally not widespread. They're considered to be a little bit exotic. Um, A lot of medical uh, providers don't even realize that they exist. And the flu is multiple things. It might be influenza A, it might be influenza B. Um, Colds might be rhinoviruses, different Mm. um, coronaviruses, actually. And it would be a a significant effort, but unbelievably trivial compared to the costs that have been inflicted upon us by COVID to create really tight surveillance systems throughout the world and not just the wealthier and and more developed quarters of the world. Um, In fact, the best surveillance system that I know of, and this is something that got ginned up before COVID, is something called Sentinel, which is going into uh, Nigeria right now, and then it will be going into other parts of Africa, where they're basically enabling uh, community health workers to diagnose the highest priority diseases in a you know, particular region, essentially on the spot. So highest priority might be the most common diseases, or they might be less common, but very dreadful diseases, like for instance, Ebola. Sometimes, you know, bubbles up in that part of the world. So somebody's got a respiratory disease and you've got a community health worker that can, you know, visit, you know, dozens of different people in the course of a day. You try to give them the tests that they need to rapidly diagnose the high priority cases. And then a next level of cases, most things can be diagnosed in a regional air uh, office um, within quite a bit less than a day. And things that are undiagnosable at the regional level go to a national level and they they can be diagnosed within 24 to 36 hours. This is going in with significant technical and financial help from, you know, a lot of folks on the outside, but it's going into Nigeria and it's going to be a tremendous system when it's up and running. And there's absolutely no reason why we can't have that running almost everywhere else in the world. The advantage of that is manyfold. For one thing, we will get a much, much better weather map, if you will, of what's happening with the cold and flu season. Um, what particular variations of the flu are bubbling up? You know, where is it migrating? It could help us manage those things better, but obviously much more significantly. If something completely unheard of or unseen before hits the radar really, really early, We'll know exactly where the outbreak is. We could sequence that virus extremely rapidly and very rapidly come to a conclusion of like, oh my God, is this something new and awful like COVID or worse? Is it not new, just rare, you know, et cetera. And it's just early detection can have an unbelievably powerful ramification. Um, another thing I'll point to of, of many, but just one other thing that I think can be particularly powerful is putting significant resources in developing what are sometimes called panfamilial vaccines. And what I mean by that is um, 
we get a flu shot every year. And the flu is actually many different things. There's lots of different flavors of influenza and the flu in particular is highly prone to, to mutation, which is why it's necessary to get revaccinated and new vaccines to come up every year, et cetera, et cetera. We have never had a really serious effort to develop a universal flu vaccine. And an ideal universal flu vaccine would actually knock out all versions of the flu and perhaps even be a, a very persistent vaccine, maybe something you need to get once every five years or even less or the booster or something like that. Estimates for what it would cost to create a universal flu vaccine, if it's possible, and it may not be possible, but people who are in the field believe that it will be, run as low as a few hundred million dollars, which is trivial. And there are only about 20 virus families, 20, 25, as far as I understand, that actually sicken people. So to, to gin up a universal X vaccine, universal flu, universal coronavirus, universal, et cetera, to gin up those kinds of efforts and fully fund them for all the viruses that could affect us and also maybe even the zoonotic viruses that we're concerned about, again, would cause a trivial amount of money compared to the cost of even the annual flu. In the United States, the, the figure for um, the total cost of annual flu, including lost productivity and medical costs, is $365 billion a year. And if it would cost as little as a couple hundred million dollars to create a universal flu vaccine, common sense sort of rebels. Like, why are we not doing this? And so I think creating an arsenal of pan-familial vaccines would put us, I mean, if we had created a pan-coronavirus vaccine back when SARS came out 20 years ago and had that, you know, in the freezer and ready to go in, in the case of a crisis, this whole COVID thing would have looked radically, radically different. How would a bad actor get a virus? How would they get something that they might infect the rest of the world with in a, in a negative way? This will sound a little bit glib, um, but they probably wait about a decade. And so what do I mean by that? Um, synthetic biology, I'll, I'll abbreviate it to SynBio, is a, a fascinating and very promising field of science um, and field of technology and field of economic activity at this point, which involves creating generally living creatures, but in some cases compounds that are created by living creatures that nature would not itself produce. And the reasons for doing this are manifold. Um, Synbio could, can, and indeed already has in some cases led to really incredible therapies. Um, synthetic biology techniques uh, could help us enormously with things pertaining to the environment. Um, synthetic biology techniques uh, can and in fact already are feeding into the development of alternative proteins, um, the creation of, of meat without the cow, if you will. There's all kinds of re good reasons to practice synthetic biology. One thing that could be a, a, a terrible practice of synthetic biology of SynBio would be for somebody to create um, a terrible virus that could do awful things. And they wouldn't necessarily even need to create it. There are already the blueprints for... Uh, Two eradicated diseases have been posted to the internet. Uh, terrible, terrible idea. And one of those genomes was actually posted to the internet by the United States uh, Department of Health and Human Services. And those genomes are smallpox and the 1917 <laughs> flu. Crazy that those have been posted to the internet. But when they were, it seemed to the people who were doing the posting that this posed no risk because who would ever be able to develop a virus from scratch? 
And 20 years ago, when these were both posted, nobody could develop a virus from scratch just from the genetic code. But that's no longer the case. So uh, a researcher up in Alberta a few years ago, to basically prove this point, created something called, um, I believe it was horsepox virus, which is a very, very close cousin of smallpox. And he did it using what we could call, for lack of a better term, mail-order DNA, and using sophisticated techniques and, and equipment and, and know-how that he had access to as a really, really smart you know, life science uh, academic to create this virus really out of whole cloth. And it's such a close cousin to smallpox in terms of its complexity and the length of the genome that the fact that this was possible basically puts the world on notice um, that at least some top flight academics, if they put their mind to it, could create smallpox at will at this point. That is the world that we live in right now. And I don't know how many people are in that category of know-how and lab equipment, et cetera, but my guess is it's probably hundreds, you know, not mere dozens, but probably not thousands at this particular juncture. Now, the trick is synthetic biology is what's often called an exponential technology, which means that the tools and techniques and the price performance of those tools and techniques are getting radically more efficient um, with every passing year. And what that means is that the things that are accessible and attainable only by the very, very top people in the field with extremely expensive and sophisticated equipment today, um, barring any kind of careful shaping of the process, are highly likely to become accessible to much less skilled people in the future. You know, take an example of, of computing. That's another exponential technology. The computing power and the capabilities that were only present at the absolute pinnacles of government, um, deep-pocketed companies like IBM, you know, top academic centers, you know, you can almost pick a decade, like in the early 90s. That computing power is now, mm. you know, in, the, in everybody's pocket, right? And things that people's mm. iPhones can do today uh, could not have been done by Bill Gates himself, could not have been achieved by Bill Gates himself on any apparatus available in the 1990s. And that type of migration is not going to happen. It's not going to be as democratized in SynBio because not everybody has a burning need to, to practice SynBio. So I don't see that kind of, you know, you know, in the pocket of all people type of proliferation happening. But it does mean that it will go radiate down um, the academic chain. So things that are only possible at a top university lab today will without any question be possible in a community college lab and then eventually in a high school lab and then maybe even in an eighth grade bio lab because the, the things that are very difficult about synthesizing DNA are already starting to migrate into tools that, that simplify those things. And so, um, you know, right now the, 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 the people who are able to synthesize very long strands of DNA. They're generally confined to service bureaus, to centralized companies that are highly, highly expert in that very complicated process of synthesizing a, like a virus length genome. And that is starting to migrate though into tools that can exist in a laboratory. And as those tools get better and better and faster and faster, the amount of skill that it takes to output a virus length genome will eventually become you know, very limited and perhaps eventually trivial. So this is a bit of an oversimplification, but the, the, the worry that we need to have is of somebody having a, essentially a DNA printer 10, 15 years from now that can print any arbitrary genome. 
And, you know, as I said already, the smallpox genome and um, the the 1918 flu genome was already up there. I mean, COVID genome is up there. Anybody, you know, can access that already. And when they can access that and output it as well, we have a tremendous risk of proliferation. That's frightening. It is. And (laughs) it's particularly frightening when you combine that reality. I mean, this is going to happen. You know, things, impossible things, things that the entire community, the entire entire project of synthetic biology would find impossible today will be very, very possible to all levels of science in the, you know, again, the intermediate future. I mean, one example that illustrates this is the Human Genome Project, which I'm sure um, most of your listeners have heard of. The Human Genome Project was the first mapping of the human genome, or actually technically half a human genome, that's a long story. It took 13 years. It concluded in 2003, which is a while ago, but, you know, 18 years ago. It's not ancient history. And it cost about $3 billion. And it required armies and armies and armies of the top people in life sciences working on that project for 13 years. Today, a human genome can be sequenced, can be read um, for about $300. So compare that to $3 billion, it's about $300 taking just a little bit of time and attention from a single lab tech. Because all of the sophistication and science and discoveries that were made during the Human Genome Project and many that have been made since then have been compacted into relatively simple tools that a lab tech who might not even have a college degree can operate. So that one lab tech can do things that the entire project of life sciences could not do in 2002. That's the speed of migration that we have. And then we combine that with what I mentioned, proliferation. So if we imagine that 15 years hence, somebody with the right equipment and that right right equipment will be widespread, could could output a doomsday bug. Um, that could be tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, maybe even millions of people who have that power in their hands. That's a very difficult number of people to keep very careful tabs on. And an analogy to look at that through is the Cold War. During the Cold War, um, the world as a whole spent literally trillions of dollars seeing to it that two people, roughly two people, you know, um, Gorbachev and Reagan, uh, Brezhnev and and um, Carter, you know, uh, Khrushchev and Kennedy, et cetera, but Jewish people, making sure Jewish people who had unbelievably, unbelievable destructive power didn't unleash that power. And that was just two people. And these were people who were highly inclined not to unleash that power because they were level-headed people who had made their way to the tops of superpowers. And trillions of dollars were spent on nuclear armaments for deterrence, on detection systems, on conventional wars to take sort of tension out of the system in places like Korea and Vietnam, staggering costs. How in the world can we keep thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people from not unleashing that kind of power? And why would they do that? Well, the answer is, you know, a certain tiny number of people in any given year commit acts of terrible suicidal mass murder. Uh, We have over one mass shooting per day in the United States. Some of them are very famous and very gory and very big, um, like the Las Vegas shooting in which over 50 people were killed a couple of years ago. Uh, Some are quite a bit smaller. You have unusual events like um, four commercial pilots that I'm aware of over the past decades have have crashed their planes, taking all their passengers with them, including German wings in Europe, Uh, that Malaysian flight just a few years ago, both of those just a few years ago. Every so often... Somebody, well, not every so often, in any given year, 
a certain tiny percentage, mercifully tiny, but very large number of people, when you think about on the aggregate across 7 billion of us, really goes off the rails and does something ghastly like that. Mm. And we need to worry about an individual having that kind of power, you know, 10 or 15 years from now and acting on it. And we need to worry about, you know, potentially groups with exotic agendas, whether they might be, you know, ecological extremists or animal rights extremists or, you know, small groups that believe the world would be better off if it were rid of the scourge of humanity. These are the types of people who could conceivably get their hands on these tools when they become very, very widespread. And that's a terrible danger. What do you imagine a worse pandemic looking like? You've talked about the likelihood of a, of a pathogen that's more transmissible or, yeah. or deadlier. Paint a picture for me of a world where it's worse than COVID. Okay, so uh, unfortunately, this is an actual example. Fortunately, it's not something that escaped. But there is, I mentioned earlier, um, a, a form of influenza called H5N1 flu. This is something that kills roughly 60%, 60% of the people that it infects. And fortunately, it is barely contagious. Um, I believe the WHO, I got a, got my hands on a, a WHO document that tracked every single case of H5N1 flu over the span of a decade. And it was something in the neighborhood of about 500 people died of it. Um, obviously a tragedy for each of those people and their families, but in a world of 7 billion people, that's a tiny number. To put it in perspective, over the typical decade, something like 70,000 people are killed by lightning strikes. So that is, that is not, you know, a major source of, of human death in the world. But um, several years ago, two groups, independent groups, one in the United States and one in Holland, basically created a strain of H5N1 that was transmissible through the air. So currently H5N1, you do need to catch it. If you're going to catch it, it's going to be through very, very close and unusual contact you know, with with poultry for the most part, and maybe an exchange of blood, like if you get caught, and the, the bird is bleeding or something like that. It's it's a really really unusual case. Transmission through the air of H5N1 is a terrifying possibility, and these two labs basically cause that to happen by doing what they call passaging the virus through. Uh, a number of generations of the virus through ferrets, and they got something that was transmissible through the air. And this is called uh, gain-of-function research. Um, gain-of-function can mean a diversity of things, but for the most part, the consensus definition of the term in, um, in virology circles and epidemiological, epidemiological circles is this process of making a, a, a dangerous microbe much more dangerous by expanding its function, making it more contagious, making it more deadly, um, giving it a longer incubation period, etc. So that was done. And um, for a while, there was a pause of a few years of United States government funding of gain-of-function research because people were quite frightened by this prospect. And scientific papers that were going to be released about this research were suspended for a period of time, but they were ultimately released. And that pause in funding has ended. And so we're currently in a world that has basically given its blessing to gain-of-function research. And it's a safe bet that lots of gain-of-function research is going on with lots of different pathogens in the world right now, because there's really nobody in authority saying no. And um, it is one of the, the theories about uh, COVID is that perhaps gain-of-function research was going on at the Wuhan Institute of Virology, uh, which would not be an astonishing thing. That institute studied coronavirus, and gain-of-function is 
deemed to be an acceptable form of academic research. So perhaps COVID was a result of gain and function research going on in coronavirus. Perhaps it wasn't. But that does go on. So let's imagine an H5N1 outbreak. Let's imagine that one of these labs that is doing the research into gain of function of H5N1 um, gets its computers hacked. And the genome of this deadly form of transmissible H5N1 ends up in the dark corners of the internet. Let's say that happens tomorrow. Let's say it happened a year ago. We don't know. I mean, no computer system is, is safe. It's all too plausible that that genome has already gotten out in digital form. And if it hasn't, it's all too plausible that someday it or another gain of function research genome will. So time goes by and these tools that I talked about get better and better and faster and faster. And we get to the point where basically any smart college student in a second year biology class, if they got their hands on that particular genome, they'd be able to unleash it. And let's say somebody has a really, really bad year and they end up releasing that thing. We don't know exactly how transmissible that particular form of H5N1 would have been amongst humans because it was only released amongst ferrets, not humans. But let's just imagine it's as transmissible as COVID. If you think of COVID with a 60% fatality rate, Mm. you know, more than half of the people who, you know, brave it out and show up for their job at a grocery store, let's say, and contract COVID, more than half of them die. It's hard to imagine grocery stores functioning for more than a couple of days. It's hard to imagine law enforcement functioning. Most societies only have a tiny single-digit handful of days' worth of food on the shelves in grocery stores at any given moment. So you suddenly start worrying about what happens with the food supply. I mean, you go into a grocery store, it can feel like nothing but abundance as you're sitting there. But if suddenly everybody gets the same idea and a whole community is going through their grocery stores and looting them like mad or buying what they can, we run out of food very quickly. All too possible, the lights go out. You know, and when you start losing food supply, law enforcement supply, electricity supply, I don't see how civilization persists for very long. And if you make it worse than that, you make it something that's more transmissible than COVID and something that's as deadly as H5N1. I wish I could say um, I can actually see a scenario in which civilization topples. It's much worse than that. I, I struggle to see a situation in which civilization does not topple. And I think that's really, it's that scale of risk that we're facing here. And it's that, and therefore our response to that risk needs to be commensurate. Yeah, so if the the symbio tools that you've been talking about are going to be as widespread as you're saying to the point of possibly being in high schools, how are we going to stop this from spreading? Well, luckily, I think that there are very, very powerful ways to navigate that, Uh, not merely taking the preventive steps that I talked about, like better monitoring and panfamilial vaccines, that could go an awfully long way. But also, we can make the apparatus of synthetic biology highly resistant to creating dangerous stretches of DNA and dangerous genomes. And in fact, that process is, is well underway. There is an organization called the IGSC, I think it's International Gene Synthesis Consortium, that uh, has many, many of the big service bureaus that I told you about that, that create particularly long and complex strands of DNA and RNA, nucleic acids in general, are members of the IGSC. And the IGSC is a coordinating body that creates and maintains this database 
of dangerous DNA stretches. And members of the IGSC basically sign up to screen each and every order that they get. Now, the trouble is, and they, they make very significant investments in this. These companies have teams of bioinformaticians, you know, many, if not most of them PhDs, that can spend a great deal of time screening a particular order. Uh, they're coded green, yellow, and red. Green, sail through. There's nothing dangerous. Yellow is a little weird. Someone's going to take a look at it. Most yellow orders turn out to be fine. Red is like, wow, this is some dangerous DNA. Who in the world is ordering it and why? And they really drill down on that. So that's the beginning of the kind of regime that can make it hard to get access to dangerous stuff. Now, the trouble the IGSC is it's a voluntary organization. Not everybody who makes, you know, abundant quantities of DNA is our members. I believe there's only one Chinese member of the IGSC at this point. There's a great deal of DNA synthesis going on in China. So the first thing we need to do is make this kind of a regime non-voluntary and universal which would involve significant countries, uh, coordination between countries. But we've managed that before with things like the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Agreement, which has not mm. been perfectly implemented, but, you know, has so most far, countries so have not. Yeah, so far, good-ish. I mean, India and Pakistan obtained weapons they weren't supposed to, and Israel almost certainly has, and and so forth. But it, it's, it's maintained a great deal of um, of security, I think, in the world. So I think it needs to become mandatory and international. And also it needs to extend into the next generation machines, the first of which we're just starting to see, that will eventually, in my view, allow very sophisticated DNA and RNA synthesis to migrate out of these central service bureaus and into laboratories, be they in universities, corporations, high schools, grade schools, wherever they go. If in addition to having the central service bureaus flag and refuse to create dangerous DNA for bad actors, you have the machines do the same thing. And there's something called the BioXP, which is at this point the best version of this type of machine that's out there. And it's made by a company that is actually an IGSC member. And so the, the BioXP will not make a dangerous strand of DNA for you until it's been uh, basically reviewed by the company that makes the BioXP. So this might sound like a, a mm. relatively small thing, but it's a very big deal. Because if we create tomorrow's mm. SynBio infrastructure around you know, machines and corporations that refuse to make dangerous DNA available to most dangerous actors, I think you've plugged a, you know, 99 point something percent of the hole because most acts of suicide violence, suicidal mass murder and suicide, suicide in general are rather spontaneous. And if you put, you know, a pretty gigantic speed bump in front of people and say, okay, you want to make some nasty DNA, you're not going to be able to do it with dead simple equipment. You're going to need to learn how to make that from whole cloth. And you're going to have to subvert, you know, subvert all kinds of productions that are out there. Doesn't make it impossible, but makes it much, 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 much harder. And I think that coupled with a lot of the surveillance, you know, disease surveillance and, you know, vaccination and therapeutic development that I'm calling for could take us a long way to being safe from an engineered pandemic in the future. Those are the types of steps I think we need to take. Rob, it's incredible stuff. And um, you're obviously a very smart guy. And I'm so um, glad you took time to chat to me. So thanks. Thanks very much. Absolutely. It was great being on here. And thank you for having me as a guest. So that was all pretty sobering, but also genuinely amazing. As you can see, like all Americans, Rob can really string a sentence together. So if you want more of him, you can find him at the After On podcast at after-on.com. 
listener.